So, Suzanne is going to lead us in singing our text today in Psalm chapter 2. We will use the tune for O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And so if you are able, would you stand um, as we sing the word of the living God? Should be up on the screen too. Here we go. Let's sing. Amen. You can be seated. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This was the response of the crowd to Pilate's words, Behold your king. Crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus told a parable about a, a nobleman who, who went away and the, were, and the people of the, of the land said, we will not have this man reign over us in Luke chapter 19, verse 14. And then John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The history of mankind is a history of rebellion against God Almighty. Man's desire for independence from God goes back to the garden and extends to the end of the age. In many ways and many times it might take the form of outright persecution against God, 
against God's people. And we saw this, say, with Pharaoh in Egypt or with many of the Caesars and the rulers of uh, oppressive nations, of outright persecution, the jailing, the, the harming, the physical abuse of those who call, again, call upon the name of the Lord. But oftentimes, uh, this rebellion takes the form, in a, a much more subtle form, much subtly, subtly through the people of God embracing godless ideologies. A great example would be the Judaizers that Paul confronts in the book of Galatians. They were saying, yes, you can be saved through Christ. We agree, Christ will save you. Christ and. Just that little word, and, perverted the entire gospel and was causing the people of Galatia great trouble. How are we saved? Is it by Christ alone or is it through Christ and? In the early 20th century, the threat of modernism uh, uh, corrupted the church as uh, the age of enlightenment had kind of reached its peak and biblical criticisms and uh, Darwinian evolution were beginning to cause people to doubt the veracity and the truthfulness and the reliability of Scripture. People began to think, oh, it's not really true. It's just a book that's good, but it is not divine. It is not inerrant. It is not to be trusted. It is a good book. It was a helpful book, but it is not the authoritative, sufficient, and inerrant Word of God. We still deal with that issue today. Today we deal with people also stressing that we don't, stressing the insufficiency of God's Word. And One might be mocked to think that, no, God's Word is good just the way it is. We need no new revelation. We don't need some voice telling us, I have a word from God. I do too. It's here. (laughs) It's done. It's complete and it's sufficient. Throughout history, people have sought to come against God and His anointed and have sought, whether through external or violent or uh, means to come against and rebel against God or through more subtle means, God, the history of mankind is certainly a history of rebellion against God. And so it is nothing new. And so this psalm gives a behind-the-scene view of a heavenly view, if you will, of what ha- of what's going on when the nations rage and people plot a vain thing and say, let's come against God. Who is this God? We will not have him rule over us. <laughs> this psalm gives us a nice behind-the-curtains look as to what's going on in heaven. Let me give you a few facts about the psalms, that I th- about this particular psalm, that I hope will be helpful and... Uh, give you a little bit of an idea of understanding where I'm going and why I'm going in the particular direction I I am. First of all, we should note that no author is listed for this psalm. So there is no superscription that precedes the psalm. And so we don't know much about it, except for the fact that um, 
in Acts chapter 4.25, this psalm is ascribed to David. So if we use scripture to interpret scripture, I'm going to just, I don't know, suggest that David wrote this psalm. Because it says so in the New Testament. So there is no superscription telling us who the author is, but since the New Testament tells us that this was written by David, I'm going with that. This is a psalm of David. Now the next big question, and some of you this may bore you, but I think it's important. What kind of psalm is this? That's going to be a question we ask. Every, we're going through the psalms right now. So for, for the next, we're going to go through Psalm chapter 5. So for the next few weeks, Psalm 2 today, then 3, then 4, and then guess what? Number 5. After that, we'll study 1 Corinthians. But one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what kind of psalm is this? Because that is integral to understanding how we interpret the psalm. If we don't understand what kind of psalm it is, um, it will change the way, it will alter the way we understand the psalm. And so there is some discussion about this. Is this a an enthronement psalm? Is this a psalm of... Uh, um, that would be sung when somebody was installing a new king? Or is this a pure messianic psalm? In other words, the original author, David, understood that he was writing not about an earthly king, but only about the messianic king. Which one is it? Well, um, I'm going to say that it is an enthronement psalm. You can disagree with me if you will, if you'd like. Um, but I do believe that the original author was saying that this is speaking of the song we would sing uh, when we are placing a king upon the throne. But understand also, this is this is not limited to earthly kingship or an earthly enthronement because it definitely points forward to the coming of Christ our Lord. We know that because it's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So here we see not only a psalm that would have been used in a royal ceremony, but it also points forward to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The next thing I want to point out, just as far as overview here, is its relationship to Psalm 1. There is some evidence, some very ancient evidence, that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were actually combined. They were a single unit originally and got broken up. And... Um, as we go through, you will note in your notes, and I will point out, that there are some very, very interesting and very direct parallels between Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 1. So that's just a, a, a little, I guess, fun f- psalm facts, I guess, if you will. They're fun to me, and so um, there they are. Let me give you a quick preview of where we're going to go today. Psalm 2 is very easy to outline. There are four stanzas. In fact, in your Bible, more likely than not, you see those stanzas uh, listed. You'll see verses 1 through 3. And then in many of your Bibles, you'll have a little space there. And then verses 4 through 6. And then another space. That's just indicating the, the various stanzas. There are four stanzas and there are four speakers. And the four big themes that we are going to talk about today, the direction I'm going to go is the futility of mutiny. The first big theme that we want to talk about today is the futility of mutiny. The second big theme we want to deal with then will be the immutable plan of God. The immutable, and that just means unchangeable. God's decrees are unchangeable. When God decrees, 
It happens. So we will talk about the immutable plan of God. Thirdly, we will see the supremacy of Christ. And fourthly, hope for all who take refuge in Christ. And I hope to emphasize that point, that there is hope, because we look around our world today and we wonder what in the world is going on. This psalm, I hope, will give us some hope. So let's begin. Let's begin with the earth kings. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The earth kings, the futility of mutiny. The foolishness of a coup against the divine Lord of the universe. And the psalmist begins, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This is not a question seeking information. Like, gee, I wonder. No, this is a a statement of amazement. Why? Why would anybody make such a foolish plan to come against God and against his anointed? Why would you plot something so stupid? And so the psalmist begins, how can you be so dense? Rage and fruitless schemes against God. This makes no sense whatsoever. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people's plot in vain? The cause for their amazement is because these earth kings are attempting a coup against the Lord of the universe and it's doomed to fail. I mean, nobody goes into battle knowing. Well, we have no, no chance whatsoever. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Here we definitely see the counsel of the ungodly. In chapter, in Psalm chapter one, we talked about the blessed man who does not take counsel with the ungodly. And here, is truly a great detail or picture of ungodly counsel. Let's rebel against God. Let's take his word and twist it. Let's abuse his commands. Let's ignore his his plans and desires. Let us come against God and all of his representatives. This is truly ungodly counsel. They plot, and here again we see a reference to Psalm chapter 1. Remember that the wise man not only does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, he does not stand in the way of sinners, but he also does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This righteous man meditates on God's law. That We talked about that being kind of a a murmuring or a, a muttering of God's word. Well, here the people are muttering a plan against God Almighty. They plot, they murmur against the Lord in contrast to the righteous who mutters and murmurs and thinks and consumes himself with the law of God. And so why do the, 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 the psalmist is amazed? Why would you come against the Lord and against 
against the Lord of the, of, of the universe. Why do you engage in such ungodly counsel? Why do you plot? Why do you mutter in hushed tones, in dark secret corners, as though the Lord of the universe will not hear your voice? Why do you plot such foolish things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They are self-established. They view themselves as being on solid ground. But it is against the God and against his anointed that they plot. So why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. They've established themselves together. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And what is their goal? Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Their goal is to remove all restraint. They do not view God's word. They do not view God's rule. They do not view God's law as something that is freeing or liberating, but rather having God as king is a source of bondage and slavery. Let us burst those bonds of slavery. This is their plot. This is what they desire. This is what they are planning to remove all restraint. I want utter and complete autonomy. I want no rule, no law governing me. I want to do as I do, as judges might say. And everybody did right in their own eyes. This is what the rulers are plotting together. Break God's bonds. Break his cords. His rules are burdensome. His laws are are destroying us. He is following God, is not freeing, it is not liberating. We want to do what we want to do. Let us plot and break God's bondage of our um, desire for autonomous liberation. So, just a quick summary of this particular stanza. These words are not to be limited to Near Eastern kings during the Davidic dynasty. See, rebellion of the human heart against God is perennial. To oppose God's anointed is to oppose God himself. Notice they say, let us, they come against the Lord and against his anointed. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, John writes this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son confesses the Father also. The one who denies the Son denies the Father. Oh, I love God. I believe in God. I just, you know, Jesus is not really kind of my thing. I just believe that there's a God out there. You deny the Son, you deny the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. We see this throughout throughout the inspired text that to deny that the Father has sent the Son is to deny the Father himself. You cannot have God without Jesus and you cannot have Jesus without the Father. They are a package deal. Um, Also, you get the Holy Spirit as well. Blessed Trinity, we we sang that today. But to oppose God's anointed, to oppose Christ, is to oppose God. 
The counsel of the ungodly is liberation from God. That is the counsel of the ungodly. I want to be free from God's restraint. And we have seen that from the very beginning. We see it in the garden. We see it in Adam. If you will eat of the fruit, then you will be truly free. If you will disobey God and go out on your own, you will then be truly free. Freedom only comes when you unhit yourselves from the God of the universe. Then you will know freedom and joy and happiness. That is a lie that was told in the garden. Adam bought it. Cain bought it. Lamech bought it. Noah's generation bought it. And they all died. And the curse continues. And again, this liberation might come from outright threats or subtle dilution of the word of God. But the bottom line is today, people are saying, if you want to be free, unhitch yourself from fairy tales, the fairy tale of the Bible, some 2,000-year-old myth that was for people of the Bronze Age or a primitive society. If you want to be free, be yourself, do what you want to do, follow your heart. Let us burst their bonds. What a foolish thought that is. Why do the nations rage? Why are they plotting something so foolish? So we've seen the earth kings. This is a description of these earth kings who have plotted against the Lord and against His anointed. Huh. I wonder what God thinks about all that. Well, good thing God tells us. He who sits in heaven laughs. Here we now begin to see the response of the heavenly king. God's response to the earth kings. The earth kings plot a vain thing and the heavenly king sits. I love that picture. He sits. Unmoved by feeble plots. He is the great heavenly king who dwells in heavenly splendor and he is unshaken, unmoved by those who live and breathe by his permission. They don't phase me. I don't even get up. He does not tremble. He does not pace. He does not hide, nor does he inventory his assets. Hmm, I wonder if I have enough angelic hosts to take care of these earth kings. I wonder if there are enough resources in heaven to handle these earth kings that I created by my own will. I wonder if heaven can thwart the the onslaught of these earth king he sits. Daniel chapter 2.21 and Daniel chapter 4.25. I think we have 4.25 up on the uh, the screen here. It says, you shall be, this is uh, um, spoken uh, about Nebuchadnezzar, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling place shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whomever he wills. The earth kings seek to overthrow the rule of God Almighty and he says, that's my kingdom. I give it to whomever I will. It's mine. It all belongs to me. And if I give it to Nebuchadnezzar, I give it to Nebuchadnezzar. We also see over in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, 
In this song, Daniel is blessing God. And he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God raises kings and God deposes kings. It is a foolish thought to think we will burst the, his chains and we will rule over him. God sits in heaven. He is unmoved. He is unshaken. That's a good place for us to, to understand. It's a good thing for us to understand. We look around our world and we wonder, man, things are off the hook. God sits in heaven. He is unmoved. He is unshaken. Then it says, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. This is not the laugh of joy. This is the laugh of derision. It is the laugh of mocking. He scoffs at the scoffers. As earth kings mock the Lord of hosts, he holds them in derision. They think they are something and they are nothing because I raise up kings and I depose them. I am the Lord of all. A couple of great historical examples. Probably one of the worst persecutions in the Roman Empire was under Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian ruled from about 284 to 305 A.D. And his was probably not only the most brutal of the Roman persecutions, but it was the most comprehensive. Many of the persecutions prior to that, such as under Nero or some of the others, were local persecutions. But Diocletian's was empire-wide, and it was brutal. In fact, Diocletian... Um, set up two pillars in Spain. And I won't go into everything that those two pillars stated, but basically those two pillars, Diocletian stated, I have overthrown the superstitious Christian faith. The The superstitious Christians I have destroyed. So here is Diocletian, Roman emperor, saying... That superstition Christian faith is now utterly gone because of my efforts. Why did you plot in vain? Why did he rage against God Almighty? Because seven years later at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, a young general by the name of Constantine had a victory and immediately made Christianity legal in in the Roman Empire. Diocletian says, I have snuffed out the superstitious Christianity. Seven years later, Constantine says, nope, it's legal. And Christianity begins to flourish. Seventy years later, under the decree of Theodosius, Theodosius affirmed Nicaea and made the Nicaean Creed the official creed of the Roman Empire. Diocletian was wrong. He plotted in vain. He raged as though he was going to suppress the superstitious Christians. But God sat in heaven and laughed, held him in derision. Just a side note, in between Constantine and Theodosius, a man by the name of Julian the Apostate, he was apostate because he denied the Christian faith, came to power in the Roman Empire, and he referred to Jesus as the Galilean, And as 
Julian the Apostate was slain on the battlefield, and in his dying breath he raised his bloody sword to heaven, and he said, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. Even then, with his dying breath, he said, Lord Christ, you are the victor. Why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? God sits in heaven and laughs, and he holds them in derision. See, as it was then, it now is, and it evermore shall be. God reigns, God rules, God lifts up, God takes down. He sits in heaven and laughs. And then God speaks. You'll notice how he speaks. He speaks to them in his wrath. And what does he say? I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Note this. I have set my king. You earth kings are plotting in vain to cast off the shackles of God Almighty. But what you don't know is I have a king. And I have established that king, and he will rule and reign forever and ever. I have established my king. I have a plan. It will not be altered. My king will be enthroned. That is a certainty. And there is a divine king whose supremacy exceeds all of the earth kings. So God sits in heaven and laughs says, I have a plan. And my plan will come to pass. So we've seen the plot of the earth kings. We have seen the response of the divine king. And now we will see the words of the anointed king. This is the third speaker in the third stanza, verses 7 through 8. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I will tell of the decree. This is an important word because God decrees and it is immutable. The coming of Christ, the Son of God, is an immutable, unchangeable, unalterable plan that God set in motion from before the foundation of the world. It was certain that Christ would come. By the way, it is certain then, it is decreed by God that Christ will come again unalterable, unchangeable. It will happen. You can bank on it. God's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. First of all, you should note this. This is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. We see allusions to it at Jesus' baptism, right? You are my son in whom I am well pleased at the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. We see this sonship attested by God at his at Jesus' baptism in that transfiguration. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Literally, it is today I have brought you forth. I think that is this idea. You're, I've brought you forth. Into this world, Paul says a very interesting thing. Paul quotes this, this, uh, this psalm and listen, to, listen carefully how Paul uses this. This is something I learned. I thought this was awesome. Acts chapter 13, 33, how Paul uses this psalm. Paul's writing says, And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us 
their children by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Note this. Paul is not referencing the incarnation and he's not using this psalm in reference to the incarnation. That is, he's not using it in reference to Jesus entering the world world at his birth through Mary. Paul is using this, this verse to speak of the resurrection of Christ. Today refers not to the incarnation, but to the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that fulfills the immutable decree of God. Jesus is the anointed one, clothed in power, demonstrated to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead, Romans 1.4. This is God's decree. I have begotten you this day. I have not only brought you into the world, but I have raised him from the dead, and this was my decree. Jesus is the anointed Son. Paul uses this idea to refer not to the incarnation, but to the resurrection. But the author of Hebrews then picks up this psalm as well and uses this psalm, uses this passage to demonstrate that Jesus is divine, that he is no angelic being, that he is uh, above and beyond all created things. He is not an angel. He is higher than the angels. He is not a created being. He is the incarnate, eternal, second person of the Trinity, and he is King and Lord. The author of Hebrews makes much of Psalm chapter 2. This is the decree of the Lord. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. Here we see the inheritance of the king. Jesus Christ is the anointed son. The New Testament uses this psalm over and over and over again to refer to Jesus Christ. And the king has an inheritance. What are the inheritance? The inheritance is the inheritance is that I will make the nations your heritage. One of the great truths of this is found in Daniel chapter 7. I won't go into great detail, but it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came up to the ancients of days and was presented before him. By the way, um, this is Christ. Christ uses this statement referred to himself during his trial and was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The nations are the inheritance of Christ. Perhaps one of the most glorious References to this is found in chapter Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. At the return of Christ, listen to what happens. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All of the nations, all of the, all of the tribes, all of the tongues, all of the peoples, all of them all belong to Christ. The, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever 
and ever. Just real quick, John 17, 2, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says this, chapter 17, verse 2, since, speaking of himself, since you have given him all authority, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give to eternal life to all whom you have given him. So what does the authority, to what extent does the authority of the Son of God extend? It extends over all people to give eternal life to all that God has given him. The, the heritage of the Son of God is that all nations and all rule belong to him. And then we see the authority of this king. You shall break these nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Basically, earth kings are like clay pots. They are easily shattered. Therefore, it is foolish to rebel. His rule is absolute. He breaks rebels in his wrath. We have looked at the earth, we have looked at the earth kings, we have looked at the heavenly king, and we have seen now the anointed king. And then the psalm closes with the narrator speaking, the psalmist. Now therefore, this is the summary. This is, what do I do about that? If God sits in heaven and laughs, if God has decreed his king and established his king, what should I do? Well, therefore, be wise. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. What do I do? Be wise, be warned. Bow before the son and give him honor and glory and give your life to him. That's what you are to do. You're Feudal plans are just that. They are futile. They will be broken. God scoffs at them. He has established his king. Now bow before his king. There are two ways. Just like we saw in Psalm 1. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way like the fool in Psalm chapter 1 or the unrighteous in Psalm chapter 1. But blessed are those who all, who take or are all who take refuge in him. The blessed man is the one who takes refuge in the Son of God. So I'll conclude with this. We are a nation that glories in our autonomy. We are a nation and a people. We are certainly not unique, but we glory in our autonomy and freedom. We have this false belief that true happiness is only achieved when unbridled freedoms are permitted. When I can just do whatever I want, then I'm truly free. Sometimes we wonder about the sexual revolution and we say, how is it that we are seeing as a good idea that we teach pornography to third graders? Why? We say that just doesn't make sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Because the last bastion of restraint is sexual restraint. And once we can cast that off and get rid of every ethic, especially any Christian ethic that might oppose it, then we will be free. Utter freedom is when I have complete and total sexual freedom. Unbridled freedom. Sexual restraint is the last chain to be broken for mankind to achieve absolute freedom and happiness, they think. But the Lord sits in heaven and scoffs. I've set my king. 
I've established my son as king of kings and lord of lords. To rebel is futile. God's plan is immutable. Christ is supreme and we can take refuge in his son, Jesus Christ. Be wise, be warned. I'll conclude with a line from George Frederick Handel. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. He shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Are you a rebel or are you following? That's our question today. Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks this day. We thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that you have peeled back the curtain of heaven and that we can see the war room of the eternal God. That you are not shaken, you are not moved, you are not caught off guard and we find that we can be secure in you, that you've given, that you've established your son as king and we can bow before him and we will be that blessed person. So, Father, I pray that everybody here is blessed by following you. If there, are none, if there are some here today who have never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, I pray that this would be the day. I pray that this day you, you would convict them in their heart, that they would turn and follow you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.